To attempt an understanding of Muad'Dib without understanding his mortal enemies, the Harkonnens, is to attempt seeing truth without knowing falsehood. It is the attempt to see the light without knowing darkness. It cannot be. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Welcome to Spice World. My name's Derek. My name's Mike. And we are back this week for Chapter 2 of Frank Herbert's Dune in an intoxicated exploration. An inebriated exploration. exploration. It's really user's choice. <laughs> Man, we're, how deep are you in there already? <laughs> Just on the first. Oh my goodness. All right. Last week we learned quite a bit. I thought it was a pretty eye-opening episode. We had a lot to talk about. We meet our characters, Paul. He is the ducal heir. And son of Lady Jessica, who is a prominent character. Yeah. And we saw that he was uh, getting his test done mm-hmm. from Gaius Helen Mahayim, the Reverend right. Mother, who's made her journey all the way from the Imperial Capital. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this chapter, we're finding ourselves, we're not on Caladan anymore. No. No, we have less the hustle and bustle of the castle, and we are in the industrial streets of the city of Harko on Getty Prime. Harko. So we're meeting the Harkonnens now, the mortal enemy. And we are, uh, even the beginning quote says that to know, to understand Muad'Dib, you must first go back and learn of his enemies as well. To learn of one and not the other is to like know of truth without knowing of deceit. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a pretty important chapter and laying a lot of groundwork down for us, I think. It is. Um, going back to what you just said, their, their city is called Harko. Yeah. Yeah, it's very plain. The, so the Harkonnens on Harko. Yeah, I can only imagine what they named their second city. Uh, it seemed like they ran out of ideas on the first. Uh, and this is going to be the polar opposite of where we were. Uh, we're talking industrial, smog, slave pits. Uh, it didn't really come Very across in the, con- in the chapter, but I want to like kind of fill that in for you. Okay. Because it seemed pretty clean from like what I first away from it well we were only in one room for it but like on that what what was your impression of this chapter yeah it was kind of shorter in content than the last one so on a broad scheme how'd you feel i felt like we put all seven deadly sins into a little corner and shut the door and that's sort of that corner is where we are i thought you were just gonna say that it was shoved into one fat man yeah well yeah that too (laughs) that's actually pretty pretty apt yeah (laughs) yeah that's a good way to think of him uh, what, and did you uh, did you like the Harkonnens that we did meet? We met two of them here we and met the Mentat. Two, yeah, two Harkonnens and a Mentat. And we learned a little bit more about Mentats and sort of what they do. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was actually interesting. I uh, read it a few times, listened to it a few times, and there is, a, I, again, just like chapter one, I think every time you listen to it or read it, there's a little bit more information that you gain a little bit more insight. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance in the uh, discussions that they have, and it really is just one long uh, conversation happening before us. Right. Um, I think with that, we can go right into, we'll get a little chapter summary and give people a rundown of what happened in chapter two. And this chapter opens in one room, and it never leaves that room. Right. Uh, This is a meeting room, uh, presumably in whatever the Baron's fortress or main base is. And this room is just a great show of wealth. 
There is uh, this beautiful petrified wood table. There are these fancy chairs, veriform suspensor chairs. Uh, then there is this globe that is spinning kind of with a fat hand from the shadows mm-hmm. clutched over it. It also describes the room as having all sorts of interesting like uh, treasures in it. Things that I don't think are normally used in this day's society. Things like tape uh, from what I assume are old Terran tape machines. Oh, uh- yeah, uh, and that's like a, a way of preserving information. Like, uh, I think there's like sugar wire around, and those are various mediums, uh, like books and cassettes and things like that. Yeah, that's multicolored scrolls, tapes, reels. Um, I just, I feel like it really gives a sense of like how much money this guy probably has. Yeah, yeah, and he shows it in every way he can. Yeah. He never holds back. It's like a, a diamond encrusted globe that his hand is on, mm-hmm. like... Platinum wires laid into it. Yeah, they, all, all the bells and whistles. They, they want you to know that this guy is very ostentatious. Uh, he, he likes to project himself mm-hmm. from this position. Uh, now, this is a meeting between the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, his nephew, Fade Rautha Harkonnen, and their mentat, uh, Peter de Vries. Now, does every great house only have one mentat? Yeah. Um, it could potentially have more. Mentats are very expensive. Okay. And very slow to be produced. Because um, it, it takes a lifetime to create one, basically. Yeah, it's like they do about, a, I think it's about 20 years uh, or so of training. Uh, like Peter DeVries came to the Baron's service uh, when he was around 30. Hmm. Uh, he had finished his training for Is his it. name Peter or Piter? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably slip up a few times, but it's right. Piter. Truth be told, part of the reason I'm doing an audiobook along with reading it is so that I can pronounce the words that I have no idea about. Yeah, uh, yeah, because um, they are a lot of very unique proper nouns. Right. I don't know how accurate the the audiobook is supposed to be if uh, if we learn these phonetically through reading or in a glossary at some point. So, uh, do you have any insight on that, maybe, as to like how accurate the pronunciations are within the audiobook? Oh, I mean, within the audiobook, it's going to have the acknowledgement from the, um, whoever is operating the Herbert whoever license the at this estate. point. Yeah, uh, so I'd say that's a great one to tip your hat to and be like, "Okay, we'll we'll right. we'll uh, go off of whatever they're saying." It's probably what I'm going gotcha. to emulate and Man. use those sayings. Uh, Peter is just a particular word. It's such a simple word and a name <laughs> that I do slip into it from time to time. Uh, and Peter is just very like, I got to remember it. And it's like being very proper with a name kind of. <laughs> but these are our three uh, characters that we have uh, in this room having a meeting. I, I would like to point out the age difference uh, in between them so that you can kind of get a feel of what's actually sitting in this room because it's not uh, very straightforward for Peter or Piter uh, and the Baron. <laughs> uh, but the Baron is 81 years old. Okay. Piter is 53 years old. Okay. And then we have young Fade Rautha is 16 years old. Okay. So that's in a, a room with these two old men who just keep taking shots at one another. Pretty big difference about 30 years per. Yeah. And I think that uh, for this chapter, especially, we mentioned that there's so many dualities in this book. Fade is a good duality to Paul. Yeah. Uh, it's it's cool, too, because we have these three individuals in each book. Maybe they are do shine a light sort of each as chapter. To the positive and negative of each. Yeah, kind of like mirror images. Yeah, that's a good one. So in this meeting, 
the Baron has brought them both in there, and he's kicking this all off, mm-hmm. uh, telling them he's explaining that this globe is actually Arrakis, and we get our first visual of what Arrakis will kind of be like. We've heard Desert Planet just hammered into us over and over, and here he's describing that the stretch between 60 degrees north and 60 degrees south is just like nothing, nothing but like rippling dunes uh, that look like caramel. He equates him. it to food, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, right away, a sweet, a delicate sweet. <laughs> Um, and then the, the polar caps are so tiny, these little bits of diamond like, on top of it. Who could mistake this for anything else? So unique. And that it is the biggest man trap. Yeah, that's our twist for this chapter, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, as you mentioned that it's man trap, or Peter, when he first uh, brings this up, he tries to mislead Fade. Right. Just on the Emperor's involvement, not the plot on a whole it seems and like he doesn't know or like maybe he doesn't trust fade or like you know fade's not supposed to know this, this yeah is for more like, he doesn't trust him because he tells the baron later on like i've told you before i don't think and the baron just none of this do what just, i tell you yeah. to do uh and the baron gets him to start um outlining this big scheme of theirs this right. trap that they're going to pull on the atreides and they've been plotting for some time. And uh, but so yeah, he calls him off like, no, like that's a nonsensical statement. Go ahead and just say what's happening. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a bit of a spat between them, not necessarily like uh, yelling and arguing a bunch, but sort of like uh, witty jabs at one another or cunning jabs, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Piter is he's on. A, he's got a lot, a lot of leash to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's on. Um, on his heels to the Baron, he gets to do a little bit of free roaming. Right. Uh, and it's very different from, say, how we saw Jessica and Mohayim interacting. Oh, or yeah. Paul and either of them in that scenario. There was not the dis, um, dis, dis, disproportionate? Disproportionate. No, no. Um, yeah, what is the word? Disbordinate. Like when a soldier disregards the orders. Insubordinate. Insubordination. Okay. Insub- yeah. I was trying to say disubordination. And that's why. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Thank you, though. I, I just had to get to the word. Yeah, we see that uh, Piter is very insubordinate to the Baron. Mm-hmm. Kind of just says whatever is on his mind. It goes as far as taunting the Baron. Right. And I think the Baron even mentions, like, I got to remember to just, like, get rid of him once he's you like outlived his usefulness because this is just so annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Threatens to strangle him. Yeah. In his mind, always, like. It does come out eventually. It does come out it does, eventually. It starts in his head and he, he, he keeps pushing the Baron, Piter yeah. does, until it comes out. Uh, <laughs> at which point, uh, Piter even pushes back a little bit mm. and is telling the Baron um, that he's just jealous that I thought of this elaborate, amazing plan and mm. that you wouldn't be able to. And that's when the Baron finally comes out and be like, I will do this. Like, <laughs> uh, And Piter, though, is, feels very secure in his place. Right. And know, that has like, to do with his mental abilities. Yeah. And not that he was like calculating it at that moment, but I think he always has uh, keeps that in mind. His position, the Baron's position, how valuable he is to him. After 50 years alive, you sort of like start to consider and think about these things. Yeah, uh, on a day to day basis, for sure. And in the Baron's service, even more so. Uh, I think the Baron is a little more known for throwing away things he doesn't need anymore (laughs) uh, in a very thorough way. Uh, As a arguments going down they get a knock at the door mm-hmm. and a letter arrives that Piter goes and takes and this is a letter from the duke leto and this is the first time the duke is sort of introduced in the story mm-hmm. uh, we've heard him loosely referenced uh, but he kind of makes a little bit of an impression 
I'm, it's a uh, it's a reply. It's a response to a letter that they had sent initially, I think. Yep. Uh, uh, so the Baron had requested a meeting. Mm-hmm. For what knows, I'm not quite sure. It doesn't really go into depth. It's basically like, uh, I would imagine it'd be the formality of the transfer of power. Uh, okay. Um, like, well, one president meets another. Like in yeah, the, yeah, kind of a handshake. See, you'd maybe uh, your your teams of people would probably communicate in a yeah. normal scenario. Uh, knowing this these one, two houses, yeah. I don't think that's really going to happen. Not, no. Uh, kind of shot down. Uh, right from the get-go, the letter starts just with Harkonnen. No titles. No Baron, no nothing. nothing. Yeah, and the Baron's not, um, I don't know, that upset by this. He sort of rolls it off and be like, well, it's a good name. I like yeah, it. no. He doesn't really care as much anyways. He refers to uh, Leto just as such, Leto. Yeah, they have a familiarity, Yeah, uh, which I like. And then it goes on to say, um, the Leto says to him, your offer of a meeting is refused. I have oft times met your treachery and all this men know. Uh, the art of Canley still has admirers in the Empire. Yeah, Conley. What is what is Conley exactly? Because uh, that's not a word I'm really familiar with. No, yeah, not one of uh, our colloquial words. Conley, in this sense, is a specific set of a law. So when they made the Great Convention after the whole Butlerian Jihad and our government was kind of settled and in place and the Imperium established, they took the time to set up Conley in that document uh, to the point where they wrote 25 pages on it. Okay. So this is very established rules for house-to-house warfare uh, so that we can have a war of assassins against each other. And the main point is that we um, avoid casualties of war and civilians dying because of two houses wanting to attack each other. Okay. So it directs everything towards the like nobles and the family and such, or kind of hitting them operationally like factories and this and that, but you're not laying to waste a whole city just to get back at them. And it mentioned something about vendetta. Is that right? Yeah. So the vendetta is what you would call for your canley. Okay. Uh, It's sort of like very, you got to have a reason for it. You can't just come out willy nilly. So these two families have a vendetta that goes back, and they can call Canley on that. And uh, one of the neat things with Canley is that when you declare it, which is what Duke Leto did here, you have to tell the Landsrad Council and the Emperor that you're doing this. And then those two groups, the Emperor and the Landsrad Council, will assign you a judge of the right. That judge is then supposed to come and he offers uh, to do negotiations between the two great houses, and there is no other witness besides that judge. So they get full license to do whatever we need to to get you guys to peace. Okay. And it's sort of like no other party is witness to it, nobody is privy to the information, and the judge is the only one there to make sure it's going okay. And so, the okay, so that's a member of the Imperial... So it's uh, chosen by the Imperial House and the Landsrad together. And is the Landsrad just the collection of great houses? Yep. So that's all the great families. Okay. That are those are... two separate entities? Because they, I think that the Landsrad and the great yeah. houses. No, 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 th- no. Those are the same. The the Landsrad and the uh, Emperor. Yes. Okay. I didn't yeah, know the... if they were subservient to the Emperor in the hierarchy or if they're kind of. They more they try to stand uh, equal to him, and the point is that the Emperor is so strong, his army is so powerful. All of the great houses together have to unite to equal him. So that's what the Landsrad is. It's a system of checks and balances. Almost. And so if the Emperor ever went and attacked one random great house. 
uh, by the Great Convention, all those houses would unite World War I style. We all have these treaties lined up and just be a block against him. Okay, cool. That, that clears a lot of things up, actually. So that's a big cornerstone of the power in this universe. Uh, once the Judge of the Right has been established and he offers these negotiations, the families can turn it down. And the last resort, if you can't get any negotiations, is a um, combat in unshielded knife fight. It's very ceremonial, so there's a lot of outs that you give each other. I assume you're basically negotiating again as you're fighting. Right. Uh, and it's kind of like duels um, in early American history, where the idea is that you both walk away ultimately. You get a chance to save face. Uh, but it's not unheard of that a line could be entirely destroyed by this manner. Wow. Where once those two fight, say you kill uh, my heir, uh, my next person in line, if they come up and they don't want to negotiate with you, they can go to trial by combat and you keep going in that. Oh my God. And there was one instance where both families were completely lost oh. because of this oh like uh, cascading duels uh. of like one family over the other. Duels are bad guys. Yeah. So the crown, uh, if once a house is eliminated, the imperial house actually gets most of the spoils. And this is to discourage great houses from just fighting each other to expand. Right, because, you know, uh, your uh, your lands are just going to lose in the long run. Right. Yeah, it's bad for everybody. Okay. Uh, so the idea is that the crown takes most of the assets and they earmark them for the house's surviving members. So the people that aren't part of that family are necessarily... divided between mm -hmm. them. They, okay, they disappear into the Imperium, to my understanding. And this is either... I think they just leverage the value so that they have an income or something mm. just to survive. The economy of this entire uh, universe is really interesting. It's not something that I've seen in any... Uh any narrative medium before. Yeah, most authors don't bother to make a stock company that's involved <laughs> yeah, in like you know, every merchandise corner. It's not corner. the first thought on their head. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird, a very elaborate component that you you got to pull like little threads out as you're going through the book just to piece it together. Right, but I enjoy that because it gives you uh, it gives you a better idea of sort of why these decisions are being made, and it's not just all irrational and rash. Mm -hmm. And so, like that is why um, they react so strongly to the word "canly" being mentioned. In this, uh, and the Baron is sort of just okay with it. Uh, I think he even respects the Duke a little for bringing it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, he does make a comment of that word, like, so rich in its meaning it's or like, something. Hmm. Yeah, like, that's the one takeaway he comes away. I think Piter, after this message, is just like... Like well, Peter's how uncouth of this. Duke he starts laughing because the Duke signs it, uh, Duke uh, Duke Leto of Arrakis. Right, and he, you know, he's just been given this world or is getting this world. Well, yeah, not in that he's getting it because of yeah. the heart. Like he's not getting it because of any reason besides they're giving it to him. Right, like, and it's know. uh by order of the Emperor, so Duke Leto can't refuse. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love even in the first chapter, I think uh, Lady Jessica's quick to say we did not get Arrakis. Uh, which plays into the idea that I think maybe uh, the Leto's know something is up here. Well, you know, even in this chapter, we know that Duke Leto knows. Yeah. So you know that Jessica knows. We know that this... Just uh, by proxy of them sharing yeah. everything. Part of this plan we're going to find out is that uh, Arrakis going to the Leto's is part of the greater scheme. 
Um, let's a- uh, let's go into the plan right after. We'll finish the synopsis, sure. and I, I think that's one that we can definitely go piece by piece through. Sure, yeah, it's so interesting, and it's obviously going to dictate the rest of the book for us mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. So it's careful that we do pay attention and sort of dive deep into some of these. Uh, threads yeah follow the steps along the way mm-hmm. we're gonna watch them pop up see what ones have already occurred because uh, we're jumping into this they've had this plan orchestrated for decades right and in the works and uh going so after that letter that argument starts up that we kind of got into and that argument goes on until fade ralpha who at this point we've sort of ignored starts squirming in his chair and he is so uncomfortable he's bored he well, doesn't want to be here he's 16 this is an 81 year old guy <laughs> arguing with a 53 year old guy this is like the fishing trip you just don't want to be yeah. on right now oh it's got to be so awkward <laughs> and there's probably a million other things he would rather be doing right uh, this kid isn't moving this kid's got a life yeah. he's in a busy city on a great planet um but he's He's locked in. He's got to be here. And the Baron keeps kind of, he brings it up like two or three times. Like, aren't you learning something? Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach you. And he, he'll he perk up for a second and be like, okay, well, I'll give you a chance. And they start bickering again and fighting. <laughs> Slopes back down. But we come back and the uh, Baron really gets Piter to straighten up list out the whole outline of this plan and the yeah. scheme of theirs to perform his function of a mentat to perform as a mentat after all that. And we, and we, he does, he straightens up and he spits it all out finally. And after they discuss the plan, we have the Baron finally emerges from the shadows. He's been obscured this whole time. So we don't know what he looks like until, except for that fat hand coming right. out. And, uh, how, how'd you feel about him when he finally makes his debut? Um, I guess I didn't give credit to like the fat hand and sort of like him burping in the background and everything. Um, he's a fat man. He is. Uh, they fly. say they say like uh, like almost uncomfortably fat, like in uh, how he looks, and that he is uh, got I think grafted or harnessed onto his skin under his fat folds some like anti gravity little devices. Mm-hmm. They're uh, like suspensor a, they're portable or, suspensors. Yeah, su- portable suspensors. And uh, despite weighing like four or 500 pounds, he's just sort of like walking around like he's only 100 pounds. When you have money, it doesn't matter how much you weigh. You can just sort of do what you want. Mm-hmm. And like he just comes out and just says, I'm hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Send for food, my darling. We'll eat before we retire. <laughs> it's odd. I just I want to I imagine he sort of like comes out in like a chair that's floating around but i i would love to see how this man actually walks yeah the if mo- it's like on a moon sort of like bouncing like gravity kind of stuff, i was gonna tell or- you the movie they they take some leeway and they really roll with it and oh, really? he straight floats up into the air and yells <laughs> he, and like, chants like yeah they they <laughs> lean into it and embraced it uh it's a little too much Oh, oh the, the Baron is an overwhelming hedonist. Uh, <laughs> disgusting, disgusting yeah, man. Yeah, no, I totally get that, though. And that's why I think, like, you know, putting all the seven deadly sins into a room or into a person into and what, calling yeah. him Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, like, that's what I get out of him as a character. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, honestly, uh, he's he's cunning, so I like that about him. Um He's very power focused he is and very focused. family focused, but uh, he gives thought to things as well. He is uh, stern, but uh, he doesn't necessarily say things without uh, thinking about their meaning and what he is saying. Yeah, he's never reckless. Mm-hmm. I think that that comes across like he definitely will 
always indulge in his pleasures and anything, but never to the point where he would risk something that he has gained. Right. I mean, what, he's lived to 80 years old and his family is known for a blood feud. Like, he's got to have known something or gotten away with something there. Yeah, he, uh, I can even tell you, at the age of 20, he is the responsible, his father was murdered, and then he killed his wife, or his mother, I'm sorry, <laughs> he wasn't married yet, uh, he he killed his mother, and that was how he became Baron. What? So this guy has a dark history, Dude. we'll get into one day. Oh my god. Um, yeah. Uh, I've got some more thoughts on him, but like that didn't really come to light until like maybe five minutes before this podcast uh, episode aired. And he was like, oh, by the way, that, <laughs> that little bit blew my mind. But well, uh, before we go into the characters, let's go through that plot and that scheme yeah, that think, they're hatching. This, I think that's uh, going to be the real meat of it and sort of dictate uh, or sort of not dictate, but be in the back of our minds every step of the journey throughout this book, because it seems like this is going to be encompassing a fair amount of time. Mm hmm that this plan comes to fruition, but it's laid out pretty systematically as well. Right. Uh, all through Peter, uh, or Peter, recollecting what he's kind of pieced together. And remember, he's devised this plan. This is mm -hmm. the guy behind the wheel here. Right. Um, so the first thing they plan is they're going to have the emperor transfer the Arrakis and give the fife complete to Duke Leto. Mm -hmm. He's going to give up his fife of Caladan to the Count Hasmir Fenring. Is it uh, common that uh, a family with a complete fife on Arrakis would just give it up on a whim? The, um, would you, you mean like, would Leto give it up in the future or for the Baron? I mean, like in the history of... Uh, oh, I can't say. Uh, I don't know anyone else that was on this Arrakis before the Baron. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so is he one of the first people to have the fife complete? The Duke Leto? Or not uh, the Baron. The Baron has a quasi fife. Okay. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, we don't see other characters that deal with this. And after the events of this book, the whole system is different uh, as well. Okay. For who controls oh, and how Dune works. Yeah. So I, I don't know. There's nothing that colored that in okay. the Dune Encyclopedia. I was just curious. But that transfer is going to occur, causing the uh, Leto family to... Or, oh, you kept calling it Lados. It's the Atreides. Oh, right. His Lado first is name his is Lados. That's right. Like, and you put that seed in my head. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Atreides. That's yeah. right. It's like, it sounded so weird to me. <laughs> but I couldn't place him. I'm like, he is Lado, yeah. Yeah, Lado Atreides. Um, right, right, right. Sorry, I keep forgetting that. That's okay. Yeah, that just occurred to me. So, duga, 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 they're going to switch over. Uh, once they've the Atreides have established themselves on Arrakis, uh, we're told they're going to go to uh, the city of Arrakeen instead of Carthag. And this is all stuff that uh, Piter is predicting is going to happen. Yeah, so Piter is the Mentat for the Harkonnens, and he is trying to outplay Thufir, the Mentat for the Atreides. And so diving sort of into Mentats a little bit more, because I think we just touched on it a little bit, but they're basically human supercomputers. Yeah. Um, because we don't use machine thinking machines anymore. It's been uh, outlawed by the Butlerian Jihad mm -hmm. and that mentality and way of thinking, um, which as to the reasons for it, we don't need to go into right now. That's like super ancient history compared to what's happening right now in sure. this book. Uh, maybe for another time. But um, it's basically a chess game when two Mentats are at the table 
because they can always predict what the other one's going to do or attempt to predict. Not always. It comes down to which one is computing the best, maybe. Is that a good way to think of it? It comes down to which one has the best information. Okay. So Mentats are purely limited by their information. You have to have spies. You have to have ways to get this information to them. You have to validate that information. If your Mentat is full of false intel from a counter espionage plan, he's going to operate with that false intel and come to oh, false conclusions. So information becomes king. That, that is the, the currency. And the Baron has an amazing spy network. Much better than the Atreides. Okay. So we can actually kind of trust that uh, Piter, he's probably operating with better information than Thufir is. Uh, yeah, okay. Gotcha. And Thufir being the Atreides Mentat. Yes. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Thufir Hawat. And I don't know. So, like, there must be some level where you could compare Mentat to Mentat. Mm-hmm. But from my understanding, that's going to be the most salient difference between any of them. Right is uh, what they're fed to work with. So this is all being, his plan is the predictions that he's got based off of his information. Yep. And what he knows that the, uh, as far as what he knows that the Atreides have for information. Yeah, so it's kind of like he's running a simulation in his head mm-hmm. where, and remember this guy, the base thing a Mentat does is memorize 20,000 different numbers oh my God. in orders and patterns and such. So he's, that's the level one. This guy's been doing it and is a professional for it. He's been a uh, professional Mentat for about 25 years. How much do you think it would cost for me to hire a Mentat to do my taxes? Fortune. Oh. Uh, I can tell, like, Thufir Hawat is one of the most expensive Mentats in the universe. Oh, he's, oh, so he's, like, up there. Yeah, with his renown, he's probably the most experienced Mentat. And the Atreides could never afford to buy another one. Uh, like, uh, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit of why that's kind of why they trained Paul is if Thufir is very old. Oh, is he? And once we lose him, that's kind of something like that's they can't the, get another one. Yeah. They so. won't be able to for oh, a lifetime. Interesting. Uh, so that it, makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think the Baron could afford another one? If oh Piter yeah. Were the Baron so, goes through them. Piter, okay. let me actually tell you something. Piter is uh he's not a normal Mentat. No, no. Piter is what's called a twisted Mentat. That sounds wonderful. What is that? <laughs> it's exactly what the Baron would want. <laughs> so the Mentat school, we're going to go do some history here. While it was on its uh, up after the Butlerian Jihad and growing, it took a while to get people on board with it. They were very uh, reluctant for anything similar to a computer, too. Right. So that school was a little taboo to start. And one of the ways the proprietor of the school, I don't remember his name, um, but he went around to some planets and eventually he had to take a little refuge. And on that planet is an organization called the Bene Tleilax. And they are some nice creepy guys who like to walk the line of technology. Okay. And so they actually stole the Mentat process. And this became a bit of a scandal for a while that uh, took the Mentat school time to clean up. And they eventually moved away from that. Okay. However, the Bene Tleilax still make Mentats. And so the Mentat school is pure and is uh, the ideal form. That is what Thufir is. But the, That's a great one. Was a it twist, the Bene Tleilax? The Bene Tleilax. Tleilax? Yeah, it's like a TL word. Oh, God. And then you throw an X in there. It just becomes really fun for the time. Why, Herbert? Why? <laughs> <laughs> he just rolled some dice and was like, yeah, good enough. <laughs> we don't need vowels. You know, guys, come on. I'm thinking Scrabble in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> it's even uh, like they're actually the Bene Tleilaxlu. All right. I'm just saying at some point, Dune Scrabble, that should happen. That mm. sounds wonderful. <laughs> 
But the Bene Tlilaxu, they uh, will take a Mentat, go through the normal process of it, mm -hmm. but they will take any input you want for what you need. So say you want a Mentat that will just get sheer delight at a torturing somebody. We can take empathy right out of the equation. Say you want a Mentat that is just going to like, I don't know, for some reason operate in a pleasure house. We can do that for you. So the Benny Tlilac is basically the Build-A-Bear of Mentats. Yeah, yeah, they'll do, oh they'll do anything. <laughs> wow. You got, you got money. Cool. Yeah, this is, it's like the deep web of uh, this universe. <laughs> you can get anything done there in the weirdest way. Oh my God. And so the Baron orders these Mentats that are um, especially no empathy. They're very cruel. They will see, you know, the quickest way mm -hmm. to get you from A to B and not worry about ethics, morality. So are they made to order then? Yeah. So uh, when... Uh, yeah, that line coming to your mind? Yeah, no, I'm glad that you mentioned the ages now because so when uh, Baron Vladimir became the Baron of the house, that's probably about the time it's like, all right, I know what I want. I need a Mentat. This is what I want. And what, 20? Yeah, uh, so when the Baron became the Baron of the house, uh, he still had a house Mentat. Um one named Klee. I can't. Ah, one named Chardon Klees was actually mm. his house Mentat. So he had a place to start from. But I think he would have ordered Piter not soon after just because wow. of the timing of it. So knowing that, um, there's there's a little bit more of a connection that I initially gave credit to between Piter and the Baron. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Piter, he would have been trained as a Mentat kind of anyway. Right. Uh, he did end up in that program. And then when the Piter, when the Baron ordered him, they do their special work and right. be like, this one has a place. Um, and one of, one of the features about Piter is that he's got a bit of a bloodlust to him, right? Yeah. He's very cruel. He's got uh, venom. I think even the Baron says, where would I find another Mentat with your venom? To which he says, the same place you found me, my Baron. Yeah, that's, oh, that's that, some deep dive. I like that. That's, that's where cool. he was found in this little place. And uh, I, I got to tell you this one little bit of how they train them. Okay. Uh, so they take to make a twisted Mentat. Uh, one of the things you got to do is uh, completely break their confidence in authorities, loved ones, or in persons uh, in traditional positions of trust. So teachers, mentors. And the way you do that is you put them in a room. You then, in this room, that a person walks in. They're called a face dancer. Now, the Bene Tylaxlu, no rules. Uh, they're all about genetic manipulation, everything. Face dancers are able to... Remember how the voice, you find that resonance frequency? Yeah. Face dancers do that with your DNA. And they can change their shape tone of their voice. So they're like doppelgangers completely. Yeah, it perfectly. Wow. Uh, Bene Gesserit can usually see through it. If you know the person, it's possible for them to slip so up. So it's more of an illusion kind of thing? It, or, it is a physical change, but or, I just mean that if they don't perfectly know that person. Because the Bene Gesserit can sense those minute. They make those character profiles okay. of you so astutely that they might catch on to if you slip up in any manner. Okay. Uh, but the face dancers are also trained very well to be able to clock those things. So like they're watching how you move. And little micro wow, movements that's of yours, crazy. just so they can replicate you. Uh, they started out as like a, I think like a troop of dancers kind of deal. When now, do you when do you learn about the uh, Benny Twilight Twilight? Uh, chapter one, book two. Oh, like novel two. Sorry, oh. not, not like book two in this. Uh, but they they come oh, into okay. the next book uh, okay. right away. 
So if we get to if we get to a book two, when we, we get we'll to see Dune Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the face dancer comes in, takes on the form of these trusted ones, these loved ones, these advisors, and then commits atrocities in front of you until you have no until faith you just in hate them. them. Mm-hmm. And they just break you. Wow. So that's what Piter went through. So they try to inflict trauma on you. Yeah, in yeah. A direction that they deem necessary. Do or do not. There that's is no crazy. try. Wow. That's they, cool. They just torture you. So uh, I know a lot more about Piter than I originally uh, thought I would, but I love it. That's kinda, wonderful. You kind of know what's going through his head yeah. now. Uh, and I guess it makes me sort of uh, enjoy the banter between him and the Baron now mm-hmm. in that he has very little sort of respect for um I don't think it's that he, he I think he respects him but I think Peter wants power more than anything else. Peter wants power more than anything. Peter wants power more than anything else. Uh Peter picked the pepper. Yeah. So I I think he likes seeing how far he can go. Uh, kind of just like a child staking out his independence when like a teenager starts talking back to their parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always straight disrespect. It's also you trying to say, I'm an adult. I just want to be treated. So like right. this guy wants to be a baron, not that equal. Mm-hmm. And I think he just likes to play off. So that's why he likes to let the baron know he thought of the plan. He put this all together. Okay. Like you own all this, but I'm the only one who knows how to make it work. <laughs> Like, wouldn't it be great if you could have thought of this by mm-hmm. yourself? Mm-hmm. Like, Piter, I swear I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> or even just the fact that he knows what the Baron has in mind in some respect. Right. Of, like, I know you're not going to kill me. So they're going to, or uh, the Atreides have been given the five complete. They're going to be going to uh, Arrakis, as predicted. And Piter predicts that they're going to go to the city of Arakeen instead of... Carthag. Carthag, which is the one that the Harkonnens sort of own that, and are take residence in. That is the bigger city on it. Uh, and that was where they had their capital. Gotcha. So they think we're going to go here. We're not going to hang with the Harkonnens. It's going to be safer to defend as well. Yeah. At the very least, you don't want to move into a house the Harkonnens were just in. Right. Does that have any more traps that <laughs> right. are going to be there? So yeah, they, they think they're going to find greater safety in Arakeen. And they're taking up the former residence there. Uh, gotcha. That was where Count Hazemir Fenring and the Lady Margot resided. Right. And those two are actually going to Caladan. And they're taking over the fight oh, on Caladan. Interesting. Yeah, a little bit. They Wait, never I mentioned the Harkonnens were going to. No, 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 no. Oh. It, is, it isn't a swap. Uh, they, they're just taking it away. I think if it was a swap, that might even make it more obvious right. what the actual plan is. This is just okay. sort of doing business. Okay. And then, you know, we're since this one has to go, we'll put the Imperial Lackey here, because that's what Count uh, Hasmir Fenring is. He's the Emperor's best friend. Okay. So he's going to get that station. And once they're safe in there, the next step they were going to take is uh, make an attempt on Paul's life. Right. And uh, they've got an agent in place to help them make that happen. Although I don't know exactly know how it's going to be. It's got to be made to look like, uh, was it uh, made to look like an accident? Not, uh, not no, an no. Accident. They, they, uh, the Baron or Piter mentions that it's possible Paul could die in it. Oh, as and an that, accident. that would be the accident. The Otherwise, idea. the idea is that they're not going to kill him. The Baron wants Paul captured alive. Right. For whatever devious means that uh, ensues, which I think is interesting that he doesn't just want to kill the heir of the family that he hates so much. He wants to eliminate Duke Leto. Um, they want an attempt on Paul's life to sort of uh, propagate the rest of this plan and begin the plan in motion. But 
ideally Paul doesn't die from it, but it has to look real. It has to look genuine. Yeah. So that's where the accident could occur. Yeah. Uh, Cause I mean, they are gonna, it is a real thing they're throwing in. Uh, we'll find out what that attempt is when it mm-hmm. goes down. Uh, however, it's going to happen. Right. The second little chip they put on the table. And I think this is kind of interesting. I wonder how you felt about uh, the reveal of Dr. Yui. Yeah, you know what, in chapter one, okay, so there were two characters in chapter one we didn't really touch on. That was Dr. Yui, who was one of the uh, instructors and teachers that, like, taught Paul throughout his uh, upbringing, and then the mentat. uh, Thufir Hawat. Thufir. Um, I, you know, they were mentioned briefly. There wasn't a lot on them, so I didn't really think to mention them. Now I kind of wish I had because he is apparently a very big player in all of this. Yeah, and they don't hold anything back. Uh, they love to tell you that Yui is the traitor. Yeah, he is a double agent. He, uh, is there working for the Baron and at a moment's notice can do his bidding. Um, to the point where uh, Piter actually incur- tells the Baron, like, why don't you just have him kill him if yeah. you're really so serious about this happening? It's like, because, you know, the plan wouldn't go the way he wants. He needs everything to fall around him and then for him to die. And that'll send a message to the other house. Well, no, no, he wants and that the Duke knows. And the Duke That's has to know. That's the most important. I think, like, literally the house's knowing is secondary to the Duke knowing that it is the Baron who pulls this off. Okay. Um, but there, I mean, oh, that, that's almost contradictory to something else in this chapter about the Duke already knowing that like, there's a plan afoot. Right. Well, I think that's the difference between the plan being afoot and the plan succeeding. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the Baron wants the Lido to know the plan worked and that he lost and that the game is over. Before it's like he, he wants dies. that classic villain monologue at the end. Like, I want you to yeah, know exactly yeah. how I did it. And I want to tell you exactly me. how to yeah. make sure we're on the same page. Right. <laughs> And then you can leave. <laughs> and uh, there are going to be a few moments. So we're letting the uh, Dr. Yui and knowing he's the traitor, knowing there's this agent, knowing this attempt with Paul is going to happen. There's also going to be some attacks on some garrison towns that they're going to let the Duke think he right. won with. Right. Uh, and that's the point. So that's why I think like also Paul's thing failing. It gives them a sense of security once they overcome it. Right. It's like, you know, get a couple wins under the table. Mm -hmm. But really, that's to distract them. Yeah. Uh, And more particularly, it's to distract uh, Thufnir. Thufir. Thufir. Oh, no. It's (laughs) happening again. again. (laughs) Uh, It's to distract Thufir because, you know, like we said, the Mentats uh, being these great minds that can predict uh, what may happen based off their information. um, It's almost like a game of chess between them. But... um, the uh, what Professor Yui is sort of a wild card in this because um, he is he has something called imperial conditioning, mm-hmm. which is I'm not exactly sure what the exact uh, definition of that is, but yeah, there's a great weight on it. He so mentions. he's a he's a souk doctor, S-U-K. OK, uh, and it's part of the souk school and they are a medical school. And they train kind of like all these other schools we've encountered from childhood. (laughs) You're raised up to be in part of this. Mm -hmm. And they are raised to not even be able to contemplate hurting or taking a life. And this is through just conditional therapy growing up. Any expression of anger is punished. Any act of humility is encouraged and praised. And they... um, or just never allowed to have sort of like angry thoughts or dark thoughts as they're going. And the, it's definitely like kind of social conditioning on them. And apparently it's got great success because uh, he mentions that 
there's great weight put into imperial conditioning. Like if someone has that, you could say that like, oh, this person could even be next to the emperor and you wouldn't yeah, have to worry so that, about anything. That is, that is a whole idea. It was created by the imperial house. Uh, they fund the majority of this. And uh, it was only as the school grew that the other great houses, most great houses would actually kind of pool their resources. So a few houses would buy a souk doctor and then share mm-hmm. his services amongst the great houses or minor houses. And uh, every five years, one souk doctor is created. Oh, whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. That's a limited supply. Oof. Um, what's I going to say? <clears throat> Uh, well, I was uh, so he has the imperial conditioning so he can be next to the emperor. But you're saying it's a great success. Clearly, it's not right. Um, that's something that I think uh, Thufir would uh, say, like, oh, imperial conditioning, looking into his background. If he has this, there's no way he could be the traitor mm-hmm. um, because it does have such credibility to it. But Piter says that they found a way to break it. They found a something that no one should be able to do mm-hmm. at all. And I think uh, Fade, Roth even, Fade Rotha even says like, oh, that's interesting. I, this is something I actually do want to know more about because th- like, that's crazy. That's the one bit of information they don't tell him. Yeah, I know. That's <laughs> the one thing they don't bring to the table. And I want to know. Yeah, we're, we're going to let that unfold. Uh, so as for Thufir and Hawa, uh, I'm sorry, as for Dr. Yui and Hawa, uh, and Thufir Hawa, for you want to know more, we can kick that one down the road a little bit. Uh, when we do get back to Caladan later on, we will meet these guys in some subscript chapters. All right, that's cool. So we let's save anything you got for them. We'll, we'll kick off for that. Uh, well, the takeaway, though, is that because of this conditioning, uh, Thufir will not suspect Yui of being the traitor. Correct. And will instead turn his eyes to someone else who might be in the position to do so. And I'm not sure exactly how we get from A to B, but I guess his next... Um, suspect would be one who's like something that would be completely unheard of. And so like, how do they describe it? Um, oh, oh, they, uh, he says uh, a suspect crossing Howitt's path, the very audacity of which uh, of the suspect will recommend her to Howitt's attention as like, is there, could this be it? Like, is this actually happening? And like bring alarm to him, sort of cloud his thoughts a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, revelation is Lady Jessica would be the suspect somehow would be the one attempting the assassination of her own son. I'm not quite sure how we get from A to B. And I think we're going to have to just watch that unfold as it goes and see if it makes sense in our heads as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess uh, Piter's not very often wrong. So, And the whole point of this is that they want to impair Thufir Hawa. Right. Which means a very specific thing. With a mentat. Impair. Is it to get emotional? Yes, in a way. Uh, if a mentat, they go into sort of a trance when they're processing their information. And if you can get a mentat to lose confidence in himself and his computation, if at any point he doesn't trust what he's doing in his head, he starts to question it. Think of how fast that mind is rolling and rolling. Like that question starts to can create circulate. even a single it error loops. can extrapolate into falsehoods. And eventually you can actually break a mentat. Whoa. And a mentat can't con- uh, computate so anything anymore. you just anymore. blue screen a mentat. You, you brick it and it just stops. Oh. And a mentat then has to be reprogrammed. They have to go back to school. <laughs> yeah. 
No, it's like uh, you you got to go through years of therapy to get over that. <laughs> oh um, my god, that loss of confidence. You might as in well yourself. just kill the mentat and start fresh at that point. That's like, kind. They never get back to the same level. Oh wow. Yeah, they're a broken person. So they're they're uh, refurbished mentats uh, for cheap. Yeah, <laughs> you can yeah, get... yeah, you can get them on the house miner. <laughs> oh man. Um. So the, the plan is to trick uh Thu- uh Thufnir then. Yeah, if we if they can impair Thufir and you can throw a brick into that Mentat's power, all of a sudden the House Atreides loses its Mentat, is questioning the wife of the family, is, you know, the Duke will be on edge. That just leaves us with his other two lieutenants, uh, or three that we know of, one of which is a traitor now, being Dr. Yui. Mm-hmm. So we're down to Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck. <laughs> Which, you haven't met them yet. If any two could save the day, it's going to be those guys. Okay. But it, it's going to be I a just, hard I don't plot. know why, but I love the name Duncan Idaho. Yeah, he's cool. And that's pretty much our plan. Oh, I'm sorry. The, well, no, there's more after we that. We forgot the, the, most no, the most important part. Yeah, <laughs> our play. I was so caught up so, with Dr. Yui. After distracting Thufir enough, it allow for them to do the next phase of their plan after they feel like starting to build their confidence with a few wins. He's been distracted not to really think about sort of uh, what the Harkonnens might be doing or plotting in all of this. They're going to assault the Atreides family with two legions of Sardaukar. 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 And these are the, they're going to be disguised as Harkonnens, but they're actually soldiers and merciless, terrifying soldiers of the Imperial Order. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, the Imperial family's personal army. Every great house even pays levies that go into this army. Okay. And they uh, are taken to the planet Salusa Segundas and go through these harrowing rituals on like, this terrible prison planet. And what comes out are the most elite soldiers who have had nothing but hardship their whole lives. Uh, the description I've, I, or best way I can describe them in my head is being like... Uh, Genghis Khan's like Mongol hordes, but like given Roman like training. Uh, yeah, I, I would just send you right back to Sparta. Sparta. Okay, yeah, yeah. These are warriors. Okay. Their uh, their whole culture is just based on producing a warrior. To some really cool uh, extents, uh, let me just give you a little of their tribe law. When uh, because the whole goal is to create an adult warrior, so mm-hmm. you can have a constant army. So when these things, when these people are growing up, they are encouraged to be aggressive and attack, to fight anyone, anyone who disrespects you, you battle them, you duel. Uh, you're allowed to fight to the death up until you're 18. Once you're an adult, you cannot fight to the death. Because, like, you, the investment is too great at that exactly. point. Exactly. It's fine if a good soldier kills a bad soldier, but right. there's no point in having our best soldier kill our second best soldier. <laughs> right. Like, that's what it comes it's, down I to. Mean, yeah, no, it's a good mentality, I guess. So I do, I like that organizing part of their structure where it's not like they're just completely bloodthirsty. There, it seems like there's one person at the top who is thinking in the long run, and they've created just a brutal society that creates these warriors and they are a class unto themselves in the universe. Uh, So there's something to be feared. Yeah. It doesn't take uh, many, or I guess, like I said in the beginning where the Landsrad is set to oppose the Imperial, Mm. it takes the entire Landsrad of all those great houses and all their armies to impose one army by this guy. Wow. Okay. Gotcha. So the Sardaukar are scary. Yeah. There was one attack that the Landsrad pulled off like 
3,000 years ago against the Sardaukar, mm-hmm. where they wanted to make a point to be like, these Sardaukar were starting to attack houses and expanding that way. And they had to prepare for months. They had to all go, all blitz, just like a few places, and they still just barely won and were able to knock the Sardaukar back. Oh, my God. Uh, but even then, they could only hold those places. They weren't able to push any further. Right. Uh, but it was enough to make a make a message. They got a treaty signed. And the Sardaukar were sort of uh, sent out to other places and stopped attacking houses. Mm. So two legions. That's very scary then in the yeah. grand scheme of things. Um, I think Piter even mentions like if a legion or two of Sardaukar came to uh, Gades Prime, it would destroy the Harkonnens. And uh, that would be the end of it. So two legions against uh, the Atreides family in a small little city on Arrakis would wipe them out. Yeah, he even says, uh, one day the Emperor will send a legion or two of his Sardaukar down here <laughs> under Getty Prime, and that will be an end to the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. So not even the full two. Oh it would be enough God. to finish him on his own planet right. that they've owned for Save as long as I understand. So let alone Ar- Arrakis, where the, uh, the Atreides have just settled into. Right. They don't the have the contacts. Yep. Um, I, I do like that uh, Herbert added that to there to give you some sort of uh, uh, contrast or something to measure by, by how intense these soldiers are. Because what you're getting is from the Dune Encyclopedia or the the future, yeah, sort they, of the saga as a whole. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was from the background on it was from the encyclopedia. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think definitely for spelling out their threat and to be able to put it in this chapter, to be showing it against the Baron is a good move. I think, and yeah. paints two things. Where one, it also tells us, though the Emperor is involved in this plan, He's not he like could an just, ally of yeah, the Baron. They a tentative are, ally at best. Yeah, I think allies of convenience. Uh, Piter makes two statements. One being that you know the legions could come down here at any point. Uh, and the other, he talks about how House Harkonnen is being used to do the Imperial dirty work. We've gained a true advantage. It's a dangerous advantage, to be sure. But if used cautiously, we'll bring House Harkonnen greater wealth than any other house in the Imperium. So now we know that the not only the Harkonnens, their plan is to kill all the Atreides, but the Emperor is involved in some facet. And we'll look into that a little bit more as well. But the Emperor is given his troops. He's also given the decree like, hey, this planet is now yours. So Right. So that, yeah, that was something where he had to be, pull the lever on that right. one and make that switch happen. So this is this plan is involving a lot of different hands here. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of this, I think for, I guess... Uh, doing the dirty work. I think this was a plan maybe proposed in part by the emperor as a whole. And uh, part of the boon that the Harkonnens will get from this is a directorship in what's called the Chome Company. We talked about that a little bit last time. Um, it's sort of like the great, was it the, a company of like great wealth that all the great houses sort of dip into for funds? Yeah, so this is a organization that is involved with any um, trade, interstellar or intersystem. Okay. So anything using the guild is going to go through Comb. And that let the powers that be kind of, one, reestablish trade in a feudal world. And that was also how they nudged out any non-feudal governments, where if you didn't pay fealty to the emperor, you didn't get space travel or trade. So yeah, you're effectively so <laughs> done. You're done. Yeah. Uh, and they isolate them out. But every resource that moves in the universe, 
pays some sort of tithe into this. And the directorship is set up. It was originally given to the Landsrad Council. Okay. Over time, it changed, and the directorships of Comb go to any great house family that deals in 500 million solaris per year. Solari? That's their currency. Okay. Um, per year with the guild in trade. That's how you get a directorship now. So it's sort of the economic power is so distributed that way. So whoever is like spending the most you gets gotta, a little trading. bit of say. Yeah, you got to have money coming oh, and going. Okay. Uh, so you're trading with the guild in that respect or using the guild. And then the Landsrad is the accumulation of political power and popularity. But so, that can that can that can uh, you can be kicked off of a directorship if you're not paying enough or like trading yeah if enough. you're not if you're not trading in that quantity you so lose what, it. What this is saying is is he's going to be given an irrevocable directorship. So he that's once he's the, in he's in. That's right? only because the spice is a guarantee. It is only it's the only planet that makes it. It has to go out. You're getting that money. Right. You can't do less than the 500 solari because it it goes to the empire. Right. So, if you were, you would be removed from that planet instantly because people in the empire wouldn't be getting their spice. So after the Atreides are wiped out, they will have this directorship. They will have an agent and like a sub fife on the planet. So they'll always have that income coming forward. Yep. It'll secure the directorship and the sort of that uh, yeah. that power. Yeah. Lock it in, locks it more on the emperor's side, mm -hmm. uh, and really closes that all away. And while you know it is in uh, a sort of a agreement and subservice to the emperor, it puts Housework Cronin into like a crazy great pedestal for like their money and income, their uh, their uh, bargaining power. And that the other houses are going to have a harder time sort of like they're going to be up ahead of the other houses. Almost. They're going to in both those places. And then uh, on top of that, the Baron knows he's going to instill fear. Mm -hmm. And it gets a currency he's like, looking at. Too. I did this to my sworn enemy. I'll do it to like the bug under my feet. I don't exactly. care. Now, one thing I do want to kind of clarify is the emperor's position in this. OK, where you kind of insinuated that he uh, either started or influenced his plan, but he's definitely Peter, Piter is the one who pulls all these strings. Okay. And Piter saw the opportunities and the desires so for the think, Emperor's part. Do you think Piter reached out to the Emperor? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think, I think the the Harkonnens courted the Emperor in this Man, respect. And so the, far, I'm really liking Piter. He's just he's a devious, really cool character. Devious. But the Emperor, he's a, he's a very caged-in animal. Mm -hmm. When the Emperor came to power, he is the son of Elrude the Ninth. Uh, he gave us Shaddam the Fourth. There was a con or a contract with the Bene Gesserit already in place, where Shaddam the Fourth was bound to marry a Bene Gesserit, and her offspring were the only one that could be put on the imperial throne. He could have as many concubines and stuff as he want, but none of them could be heirs. Oh, and he wasn't able to break this contract. He had to adhere by it. And of course, since they can choose whether they have uh, a male males or, or females, female, yeah. they, they could obviously be like, all right, this is going to be the heir. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting how the Bene Gesserit have integrated themselves into society as one of the, like a pillar of this is our job. Politically, we make sure that we create good genetics and don't just completely de-evolve ourselves. Because with so many different worlds and travel, I feel like you could have branch off into almost subspecies of humans mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah, uh, if, like, genes were changed. Yeah. And I guess even with the Bene like, Gesserit, they're kind of different. Yeah, I mean, uh, like... The nobility itself is, at this point, sort of bred differently than uh, the normal class of people. Hmm. 
So the emperor's motivations in doing this are mainly that he has a fear of Duke Leto rising. He's one popular in the Landsrad. Okay. But if he had the economic power of a directorship in Combe as well, he's worried that the tilt of power within Combe is also going to go towards the Duke. And that now he's going to have money and military might against him. And that's uh, that gives them more of an advantage that... Uh risks his seat of power yeah or anyone kind of moving so he the the emperor is frustrated right now because he doesn't have a male heir right it's mentioned that uh even uh peter mentions even his uh the emperor's benny jesuit consorts have not given him a male heir Mm -hmm. yeah so she's chosen not to and there's nothing he can do about it he's bound in by this contract so no matter what a benny jesuit's going on the throne he doesn't have an heir He's going to have to give it to one of these great houses if, like, somebody has to marry his daughter. Oh. So I think he he's even kind of struggling to choose, you know, the fate of the the imperial seat going forward. And I think he's going to try to keep it in his own hands as long as he can. So and so he thinks that uh, Leto Atreides is a threat at this point and not just uh, Leto, but even Paul, his male heir. As a possible. um, Yeah, I I mean, just say the family as a whole. I don't know how he feels about the particulars. Okay. We don't get into his head too often. Uh, We'll see him a little bit later in the book. All right. But I just think that's kind of his main motivation. It's a little bit of self-preservation and that Piter just really plays off of that to get him involved. He gives him an offer. It's like, okay, this actually does sound good. Let's see what we can do here. Yeah. I mean, we'll find out a little more of the intricacies of the deal, but I'll tell you the uh, the Harkonnens are paying for everything. Right. So they're going to pay to transport the Sardaukar and all these costs involved with it. They're... Are they going to do that officially or are they going to have to smuggle them or it's uh, well, we'll get to touch into that. The guild plays an interesting role uh, when it comes to actually they mentioned in this one that uh, the guild is the reason spies get around. Right. OK. Yeah. Uh, OK. The guild is independent from everybody uh, to everyone's anger. So they've got a bit of a sub business like, hey, like, yeah, got some spies and, some, you know, assassins can bring them our way. We'll make a deal. Yeah. So right. like when a house attacks another house, they use the guild. And the guild will land a ship down on. That's fine. Right. And you then just, they'll deny anything. You, well, it's like, they. I don't think they even have to do that. Uh, I think it's a matter of like, you're paying for it. You're paying insurance for the risk of the ships. And right. that, that's all they really care about. And ultimately, <laughs> you're the one who's going to be liable for any laws you break in the Imperium. Mm-hmm. Uh, the in, travel is completely up to the guild. And I believe that they've gone the extra length to make it so no one has oversight over them mm-hmm. like there are no regulations on spaceflight like it's whatever the guild decides gotcha all right so that really encapsulates this plot that's going to unfold the biggest thing that uh vladimir wants to know by the end of it is that duke leto knows that it was him it was his hand and in quotes his idea <laughs> that brought an end to uh, the Atreides family. Yeah, he wants to look him in the eye when this all goes right. down. I think Piter even mentions uh, briefly that the best part of this whole plan is the Duke already knows. Mm-hmm. In the sense that the Duke must feel that something is up, something's not right. This is a trap of some sort, but I don't know the specifics of how to defend against it. Mm-hmm. To which uh, Baron Vladimir responds like, yes. He even right. says this. Uh, I, I like this point that there's a touch of sadness in his voice. There is a bit of sadness. Like, he... 
respects him. And it's almost like the game has ended. Like, this is actually the checkmate. He says, it's true the Duke knows. He cannot help but know. More is the pity. And you're right, with a sense of sadness in his voice almost. Or maybe not sadness, remorse? I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to say. But uh, he mentions that he pities uh, the Duke in the start of this chapter, and this is why. It's just like, he knows what's happening. There's nothing that he can do. And if I was in his shoes, this would be, you know, frustrating, the end, maddening. So he almost pities his rival in all of this. But regardless, he still wants to wipe him out. Yeah, he wants to wipe him out. Uh, I almost wonder if he's a little bit jealous of the Duke. Really? Just in that the Duke got, uh, you know, the Duke is the popular guy. He's done everything. <laughs> he's kinda, the cool kid in school. Yeah, well, he's just he's done everything sort of the correct, thorough way on the up and up and didn't have to cut corners or do anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the gamemanship that clearly the Baron enjoys with him of this family rivalry um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, he treats the nobility. He respects them no matter what. Um, we're going to have some interesting moments as this plot unfolds. You're going to get the Baron's kind of commentary of how he feels of what's happening to the Duke. Hmm. So we'll, that's just something I want you to watch as it's going forward. Yeah, no, and something to keep in mind. I think there is a relationship between the two. And I've never... I love that, I, honestly, those two in a room together, I would just love to have a chapter on that. Mm -hmm. Is there one? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, damn it. I, I'll tell you who Paul's grandmother is, but I'm not going to tell you if damn we get the room together. Derek! It'll be worth it. All right. Now, the last character in this room uh, that we haven't kind of touched on yet is young Fade Routha. Yeah, let's talk about him. Yeah, because uh, he's interesting in that he's the Baron's heir. But, but he's, he's not his son. He's not. He's a nephew. Uh, the Baron has a half-brother named Abelard. Okay. And uh, Abelard, he was, uh, he had to disinherit himself. Uh, as soon as the Baron strangled his mom on that <laughs> night, like, oh, gotta Abelard get out of here. came back and was like, hey, I don't want this title. I'm going to move out. And he goes <laughs> to this place called uh, Raban Lankyville. I think it's still on the planet, or it might have been another planet. Nonetheless, he goes to this other area, um, mingles with the minor family there, marries the lady of the minor family, who has the last name Raban, and he starts his own little family, and he gets to live. That's wild to imagine. Yeah, but and just wow. right up, just like, I'm not even going to contend. Like, you, you know what? Maybe I don't want to be here. So, Fade Routha is the son of Abelard and Thora Raban. So she's the daughter of that minor house ruler. We were uh, we were talking about space and names before. Fade Ratha is a space name. Yeah, that's Fade's dope. A, Fade's a good name. That's a good name. Yeah. Uh, even I guess even Peter DeVries. Yeah, as long Not as you bad. don't call him Peter. Peter. <laughs> Fader. <laughs> Peter. Uh, and then Fade actually has a brother, too. Um, oh. Yeah. He is a count. Count Glossu Raban. We'll meet him later. He's not as uh, articulate. Uh oh, they call him the Beast. Uh, oh, oh, like, yeah, he's pretty much uh, it's just a big well, kind of a warlord. Yeah, just a meat sack. Uh, uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, he just beats people. I guess up. I don't really care anymore. Not much going on in between those ears. Damn. But Fade has been chosen and selected, and uh, the Baron is really inclined towards him in a creepy way. Uh, in a creepy like, way. Yeah, in a creepy like when they retire together. There's insinuation. So this is this is part of that thing that I was talking about with uh, learning a bit more about the Baron than I, I intended to. 
Yeah. He's he's a pedophile. He is a pedophile. <laughs> I want to say some things, but I'm not going to. He is he is all sorts of things rolled up into one man. Jeez. Held yeah. by suspensers. So like I don't care how fat and gross he might seem. This is the this is what I Yeah, yeah. Health choices, whatever you've it's, made. Yeah. This is what puts the chills down my spine and makes me think like I really want this guy to lose. This is disgusting. Yeah, and I, I think Frank Herbert does that almost ham fistedly is how evil he makes <laughs> yeah. the bear. In case I didn't like articulate it well enough, this did, guy also sleeps with little kids. Yeah, did I miss anything? Yeah, it's like, oh, if you had led with that, maybe. Mm-hmm. He also punches seats on airplanes. He talks on telephones and lines. <laughs> he is the worst kind of person. He kicks puppies. Uh, he's been known to. Um, and this is his nephew. Oh, yeah, it is. Ugh. I mean, that's also why he, he Hang on, comments I need... <laughs> on Paul's uh, beautiful body. I need more wine. Hang on a second. Yeah, no, that's that's not okay. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, no. So you think that's in part why he wants to make sure Paul isn't yeah. killed? He wants him brought to him as like a plaything. Yep. Oh, which uh, actually on our dualities point here, there's a fun point in the uh, little argument of Piter and the Baron where the Piter kind of jabs at the Baron for wanting uh, Paul at that mm-hmm. point and says, you know, the accident might happen. It's just an accident. But the Baron also jabs at Piter for wanting Jessica for pretty much the same reason, where he had promised Piter Jessica as a prize. Oh, as of part this. of this deal and arrangement and plans, like mm-hmm. he gets Lady Jessica out of it. He gets her. Does he want her for like, you know, sort of like a weird, creepy kind of thing? Or? So that, I, I honestly don't know. I oh. think he just wants to torture a Bene Gesserit. Oh, interesting. It's my guess. I would not be surprised because based off what I know so far, that's very Piter. Yeah, so his lack of empathy, but I don't think it's like... Can that a, be a Disney show? That's so Piter. That's so Piter. That's so Piter. Uh, but I don't think it's like a creepy sexual thing like it is with a bear. It's just he um, loves the the bloodlust. He yeah, just wants to just see someone and cry in pain. pain. Yeah, it's sort of like what how the bear in colors crazy it. guy. Holy. Yeah, so... We're going to cross our fingers that Jessica and Paul make it out of this trap alive. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? This sounds terrible. Like, what are they going to do? What can they do? Oh, I like, mean, what are the variables now? That that's Piter what you're going to have seen? to watch unfold. I mean, ah! how far we we ever we're not even at the attempt on Paul's life yet. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see once we get to Arrakis. I guess that's when the ball really get rolling for this plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, thus far, we're kind of in stage one. And then we just know as the reader to keep our eye on Dr. Yui. He's the traitor. All right. Hmm. So with Fade Ralpha, he, uh, despite being in a terrible position within this uh, Baron's grasp, he uh, he seems very subservient in all the dialogue. But in his head, he's just like, oh, these fools, these monsters, like, what are they going on bickering about? Um, that doesn't really come out, though, when he, he tries to communicate. No, and I think that's just that he wouldn't dare cross the Baron. It's a fear. Yeah. And this is a good, another uh, comparison to like how Paul acts. And when we saw in Paul's mind for that horror deal, mm-hmm. Paul <laughs> is carefully considering and processing every action that's occurring in front of him. Fade Routha, very really. nonchalantly just not listening to a conversation. He's not. He's brought there to learn. Mm-hmm. He, he's not really learning much of anything. <clears throat> that is also kind of a joke within itself. Mm-hmm. The Baron is not a great teacher. Right. He's learning a really weird method of it. So clearly, this isn't like Jessica teaching Paul something. This is sloppy and just... Disgusting. Yeah, messy on all accounts. 
So, man, poor Fade. This is rough. Um, but yeah, no, he's there. It seems, uh, obviously, he doesn't want to be there, but he does find some uh, parts of intrigue along these lines. Like, he's interested by the Sadakar and... Sadakar, the Souk Doctor. The Souk Doctor, how you can get rid of Imperial conditioning. Yeah. But, uh... I mean, ultimately... Where was I going with this? I don't know. There's just like a sharpness to him. Yeah, there is a sharpness. You're right. Yeah, he seems like a little more uh, even in control than the Baron. I think it's sort of like the Baron without the uh, indulgences. He has imba- uh, ambition mm-hmm. for sure, but it's he he is intelligent enough to know when to act and say things upon that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think uh, you'll get to watch his ambition grow. Okay. As we go on, we'll check in on the Harkonnen from think time he, to time. He's got the potential to be a very interesting character. But uh, right now, this is just a terrible place to be. <laughs> I feel like we're almost visiting this uh, meeting from his perspective, in a way. Even though it's very third person the entire time. Yeah, well, like I said, the narration does a really good job of it floats from third person and then dips into each person's personal perspective. Right. Especially any time they make a quip at one another. Mm-hmm. And you just quickly go in from their point of view. But uh, I feel like we know about as much as Fade Rotha does. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm sort of trying to equate our experience to his. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Of like, that's why he was in that room. And you kind of yeah. feel like you're entering with the same perspective as he is. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah, no, that's, that's about it for like the main, the three characters that we meet. We went into Piter a little bit. Uh, there, there's just a quote that I want to reflect on for a moment. Because oh, I just, what do you got? Um, there's two things that, uh, I saw. One was, uh, the Baron sort of cross-examining Piter and showing Fadrotha the, uh, weakness of a Mentat and how despite their supercomputer-ness, they are in a human body, a weakness for sure. A huge fault. He says, efficient Piter. Look, he's still emotional and prone to passionate outbursts. Efficient Piter, but he still can err. That he's, you know, only as weak as his humanity is, which is pretty weak. I thought that was just kind of interesting. And like, maybe a good lesson to not only teach Fade Rotha, but for us to know as well, and sort of give credibility to Piter's plan towards uh, Thufir. Yeah, and uh, I tad on to that, after uh, when he says er that's the one thing or when he he can err that's the one thing that makes uh piter a little afraid of the baron is when he speaks the fear in his voice mm-hmm. is when he's told that he could be wrong it's the only thing that gets to him is that his calculations could be wrong and i think that's because he knows as soon as that's happening that's how he breaks well I'm, that's definitely when he's useless yeah when he can't well, not actually just useless, contemplate but that can also like destroy the confidence of a Mentat, right? Not necessarily. Okay. If the reasons for why you can't, like, if you could figure out the reasons for why you came to that false computation, then you could reasonably deconstruct and do it. It's the confidence thing. It's got to be shaken. But if he just had bad information and he came to, like, this one guess, or he was missing information and then learned that information, mm-hmm. I think that would completely make that okay for the Mentat. Okay. And see, you know, it's when they make an error they can't understand. All right. And aren't able to figure out. The other thing I just wanted to sort of like look into and uh, examine with Piter is his bloodlust and how he does enjoy terrible things happening around him. Even when uh, he describes the, the possibility of the Emperor sending a legion or two of Sadakar to destroy uh, Gaiety's Prime and uh, that that could be a very real thing. Baron says, oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? And uh, not only does he respond... 
uh, do you need to ask? But he whispers it almost in a hoping way, like, of course I do. <laughs> you know. Like, that's like, really creepy, but also really cool. <laughs> yeah, and so that's just the feature of the Twisted Mentat. Yeah, that would have been, like, what the Baron asked for. A very weird mm-hmm. thing to order. And when uh, when you mentioned that he was promised to Lady Jessica as a, a spoil of war for this entire endeavor, um, and the Baron's just like, sort of nonchalantly like, should I really give you this after all? He takes five curiously mincing steps into the room and stops directly behind Fade Rotha. I was just like, whoa. Yeah, and Fade looks up. Fade looks worried. up. What, was it? what does he say? Uh, there's a tight air of tension in the room, and the youth looked up at Piter with a worried frown. <laughs> I would, too. Yeah, I think it's very clear that he moved to the one thing the Baron cares about. Yeah, it's just like... right there as he's talking about the Lady Jessica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was really, really frightening. That sent like a chill down my spine when I listened to it. Yeah. I legit thought that, like, oh, man, Fade's going to die like well, right off that, the bat. That Fade does nothing. Yeah. He just sits there. Uh, no, they they exchange words and then Fade slowly like creeps to the side, like I'm not gonna be here anymore. No. Oh man, but uh, that, again, I think I've said everything I want to about Piter and learned more than I thought I would. Um, that's all. That's what I always hope for. <laughs> thank you, Derek. Such uh, he's an interesting character, and I really want to see where his journey leads. It may not be positive, considering he is sort of like one of the villains in this story, but. You know, in good writing, sometimes villains win. And it's the world of Dune. Uh, I hope you're not in this book for a happy ending because it's not. Oh, no. Be there at the end. I just want a great story. That, I'm here for the ride, Derek. This is going to be. be something wonderful. Um, so I had a couple of points that I wanted to sort of just touch on briefly, some of which we did address, but uh, smuggling. That's how oh, yeah. spies and assassins get around. I think there's mention of. Uh, well, they use uh, they use smuggling as a reference point. Uh, just okay. that the guild is re- it does all three of those. Okay, they're not all e- uh, mutually exclusive though. Okay, but it's like that. Duh, that's why the guild's there, so we can do smuggling, assassination, and spies. Right, and other things moving. Okay, um, how so? Smuggling is it really considered smuggling if people know about it, or is it just not on the books? Not on the books. Okay. Yeah, it's like an open secret. Gotcha. So uh, is there just like uh uh, a little extra fee that goes along with smuggling, so to speak. Yeah, to the guild? Yeah. Yeah, the guild's got some very particular interests the that you'll learn. S- the spacing guild with their monopoly on space travel, I can see why they are so like wealthy and such a powerhouse within this political... Yeah. What would g- you say? The, how, how many... There's... Uh, I think you mentioned uh, a tripod in the first episode that uh, there's the, the spacing guild, there's the emperor... And then there's the houses, the uh, Landsrad. There's the Landsrad, <clears throat> Chome, the Imperial House, and the Spacing Guild. Oh, there's four. Where well, the Spacing Guild's outside of the government oh. body. So, like, the three <laughs> so, government bodies are the Landsrad, the Imperial uh, House, and the Chome Company. So, the Spacing Guild is just very, very. You can't, it's kind of, none of, none can, can exist without the other. Interesting. And the Spacing Guild, like all of our great schools, from childbirth, you're raised in it. If you want to be a guild navigator, who are the ones that are folding space, mm-hmm. and the method at which they do it is entirely secret unto them mm. and is not shared with anybody, and no one has ever figured it out so they, or been able to replicate they it. They are a powerhouse that you cannot live without. Yep. Um, and I think that their importance is even mentioned in the Dune Encyclopedia. I think you said something to me uh, not too long ago about um, their timeline being defined by 
AG. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, BG and AG. So before Guild and after Guild. Yeah, so, They're we're, so important. We're, we're mocking our eras with that. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, and we've replaced, um, like, Common Era and before Common Era with after Guild and before and Guild. And so obviously we're an after Guild at this point in time. Correct. That's wild. So uh, that taught me a little bit more than uh, I thought I needed to know about the Spacing Guild. And interesting that uh, in the first chapter... Uh, Gaius Helen Mahayam, uh hates the Let's Spacing you know. Guild yeah. and their monopoly for, uh, we'll find out maybe, for some uh, critical reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think it lets you, your kind of mind run wild with why a woman of such high power and capacity would mm. be so annoyed with this group. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's going to have reasons. And the Spacing Guild will be a mystery that I'll let kind of unfold as we go through the book. And I'm, I don't think I'm going to have to reveal too many things of that to you. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and during the plan, they mentioned that uh, they would have, within a standard year, they'd have a sub-thief on Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I don't want to just assume things in this book. What is a standard year in this time period? So, at first, I would have said, completely based off Terra. That's got to be it. That is not the case. Okay. The Dune Encyclopedia had a really cool article on the calendar year in the Imperial System. And the one part that I found difficult to understand, and we're not going to go into explaining, uh, but I will show you offwards and maybe we can post it online, is they have a couple tables for how you would do time. So time is based off of the planet Kaitan, which is the imperial capital. That's okay. where the imperial seat is. And it has a 12-month year. But there are planets with a 9-month year, a 6-month year, or, a t- or uh, like a 16-month year. And the table shows you how to keep them all... Uh, concurrent with one another yeah Wait, what it was really complicated i read through it once i didn't quite grasp it that's why i don't feel comfortable like fully explaining the names <laughs> for it but i thought it was really cool that one someone thought of that mm-hmm. uh, and that seems so obvious of like you would need that if you were going to have a an interstellar empire right but they base most things off of how Kaitan operates and they break their whole year down to uh, we'll start with a day. There's uh, 20, 60 minutes in a day, 24 hours in a day. So that's normal. And then, Wait, 60, wait did you just say 60 I'm minutes sorry. in a day? Oh, yeah, I totally threw that time <laughs> off. Uh, 60 minutes in an totally hour. Totally normal. I missed one unit. Oh, it's gone. <laughs> 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, uh, five days in a week. Oh. I'm sorry, six days in a week, five weeks in a month. And then every month is 30 days. Okay. And then 12 months in a year. So that's the one. Right. Thing, that's the one. That's thing like we, the one of the, the, the weeks and the months there. are what we iron out. Okay. So you don't got to do the knuckle thing to figure out is it 31 or 30 days. <laughs> oh, yeah. like it's just flat, I never remember that to be always honest. 30. Um, yeah, they simplify. So that's what. Uh, so a standard year is 360 days. Okay. So not too far off from what we would expect here. So yeah. we have a, a good frame of reference now. Yeah. It's kind of like they just rounded everything down. Gotcha. I'm glad we went into that because I was genuinely uh, or genuinely curious about that. You're going to be counting the days in the book to make sure it lined up. <laughs> maybe what I should. I'm curious? Can we? Oh man, maybe we should do that. That'd be kind of fun. We got a we got a rough track. I mean, we're only t- two days in so far. That's so true. It's been pretty easy. That's going. true. We can always go back. Um, so we mentioned uh, spice in this chapter as well, which is sort of the big thing with uh, Dune and Arrakis. Spice is sort of the big. A universal resource that 
you need for space travel. Is that correct? Yeah, you need it to be able to fold space. You need it for folding space. It's only found on Dune and Arrak- Dune Arrakis. And uh, we we learned something about it. So you can, in the first chapter we learned, it can be synthesized into a drug for the Bene Gesserit. But it can also be used for other applications. And it's mentioned that Piter eats it like crazy. Eats it like candy. He eats it like candy. Look at his eyes. So spice makes your eyes super blue. Not just like, oh, they're like, you know, beautiful blue eye, but like there's no whites in his eyes. That's that's predict- that's what it's changing. Was it a uh, sclera? Is that what it's called? The whites? Ooh, I don't know. I think it's called the sc- Oh, you know what? Uh let's, you know, I I'm too drunk to find my phone for Google. But <laughs> we'll say for now, it's just sclera. And uh those are blue and then his uh his irises and pupils they're a deeper blue. Does it say they're deeper? I know I it's just so. a, they always refer to it as like the blue and blue of the eye. Uh, I've never been clear on if it changes your iris I color. Think, I think it does mention that. But the making of your eye blue is definitely a re- direct result of spice consumption. And the Baron even says that he looks no different than like someone from the Arakeen labor pool, which would be the general population that is on the spice. Because they're always, world. you know, get dipping into the spice. Well, when you're on Arrakis, it's in the air. Oh, you don't have a choice. It's yeah. So if you're a denizen of Arrakis, your eyes start that, to go blue over mm, generations. Pretty much, yeah. Wow. You see all the Arakeen population of blue and blue eyes. So yeah, so he mentions uh, seeing the feature about him that most people notice first, the eyes. The shaded slits of blue within blue. The eyes without any white in them at all. So his eyes, like the whites of them, the scholar are blue. I don't know if it's the pupil or the iris that's blue as well, but... Mm. It's just a whole lot of blue is all we know. Mm-hmm. And I bet there's a bunch of crazy cool fan art out there for this book and the movie. And I don't, I don't know how the movie handled it. The uh, the David Lynch movie goes with a little, they glow. It's a little too much. Uh, and it's just oh. the way Wait, with how they handle it. they glow? No, it's how they handle the special effects. Oh, okay. So I think uh, it wasn't like they didn't have the actors wear contacts. So I think it was a post effect. And that's why it looks so silly. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, added on, changing up. But is it, I guess it's at least noticeable. Yeah, the but. sci-fi miniseries did a little bit better. I'm hoping this movie will be great. I just imagine very much like if I were looking at you, it would just seem like black kind right. of entirely. Oh, yeah. No, it should be incredibly yeah. noticeable. Yeah. Like, um, with different. the whites gone, like that contrast is just day and night difference. You'd definitely be able to be like, oh, man, he's having some fun with spice. Mm-hmm. Spice smoothies, spice sandwiches. Is that how spice works? I don't actually yeah, really. Yeah, you can put it, oh, into, is it, really? you can put it into anything. Oh, so it is a spice. Uh, yeah. I, um, I like there. I'm not exactly sure what it, it looks or is like when you finally get it. Does but it have a proper name outside of spice? Oh, melange. melange. That's right. We talked right. about that. Yeah, I think that would be the more proper name you would say. Yeah, but spice, spice is like so much fun. And it's our namesake, so we got to kind of go with it. It's true. It's true. Yeah, so I guess that's sort of our, the meat and potatoes of it. I think, I mean, I enjoyed this chapter quite a bit. Um, do you have any other thoughts on it before we, we move forward? Um, well, with this one, there is one little uh, bit of information I can throw at you, and it's kind of right after the scene you were describing uh, with the blue and blue eyes, where Piter is making this comment, and the Baron turns to him and says, have you been chewing Verite or Samuta, Piter? Yeah, there's like other drugs. Piter comes back at him with uh, truth without fear, surprises the Baron. Now, both of those are drugs. Truth without fear surprises, Truth without fear surprises the bear. I don't get that. 
Uh, this is where he had been taunting him. So the fact that the, right. that Peter is willing to just tell the Baron, Peter ah, is willing to tell the Baron exactly <laughs> how he feels without fear of what the Baron will do to him. Okay. The fact that he's not afraid of the Baron coming at him, as we've already kind of covered, he knows he's in a safe station right now. Okay. He's invaluable to the Baron, mm-hmm. so he can yeah, make right, these kind right. of pushes. But um, particularly these two drugs that he mentions, uh, Verite is a truth-telling drug. Oh, so, so that's, that, that's where that's where the statement like "truth without fear" comes exa- in. That, yeah, that's oh. why he retorts that. Okay, I would have never gotten that. Yeah, it's buried in, and uh, Verite is actually made. You remember that petrified wooden desk? Yeah. Oh, in, in the, the beginning, beginning of the chapter, yeah, where it describes it's pink like, wood. Yeah, it's a lock of wood. A lock of wood. And that wood is what you use to make these drugs. <laughs> okay. So it's another uh, semblance of why that table is, I think, so valuable. Is that that wood is so wanted for other things? And he just made a like writing desk out of a table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of uh, cool actually. So Verite, I have a little funny anecdote uh, from the Dune Encyclopedia on Verite. All right, uh, which is just silly, but we're gonna I'm gonna read it and yeah, see. Yeah, how you give feel. it to me. Give it to me. After its discovery, Verite enjoyed a brief popularity among the younger members of the nobility, who thought it would be amusing to be unable to lie at parties. <laughs> oh no! How do you think that went? <laughs> Man, that sounds like a great party game, actually. So, Just like, so a bunch of but the truth. A bunch of the nobility go, you know what? Let's not lie to one another. I feel like it would end in bloodshed. Like uh, several of those duels coming out. What was it, Conley? Let's yeah. get it going. Yeah, <laughs> Vendetta. The next line. This practice ended very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> when it was discovered that the drug really did function exactly as advertised. <laughs> Oh Currently, Verite is only used in interrogations. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I guess it was fair to say it was when the drug first showed up on the scene. They didn't quite understand it. But <laughs> it's like, oh, this will be great. No. Nope. No, it does exactly what it says it does. What the hell? <laughs> so that's Verite. Uh, the other drug is Samuta, uh, which is a much better drug. What's Samuta do? <laughs> so... Samuta is derived from you uh, You burn that wood, you get the ash, and there's a crystal reaction you can do to it. And it creates these crystals that is Samuta. And Samuta is basically uh, ecstasy. It right. brings about a powerful feeling of well-being combined with an intensely oral perspective of the outside universe. So, like, wait, intensely oral perspective? Yeah, so that's kind of like... Um, there are a couple other drugs that will take you on a trip like that. Uh, out of body experience, kind of just, you're going into the grander scheme of things. It's kind of like acid. Okay. So this is the first like normal drug we've actually learned about. Yeah. To the point where uh, in 10,185, so it's six years ago. AG? Yeah. Uh, yeah. After Guild. Okay. Uh, so six years before our story starts. Okay. Um, Paul would be nine years old. Okay. This drug, Samuta, uh, was considered the Imperium's most insidious health problem. Uh, we have leaders and officials from Shaddam the Fourth down spoke publicly of controls, but privately despaired of ever containing the menace. The menace. This reminds me of opium almost. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly yeah. actually probably what it's taken from, of like the opium wars in hmm. China. And uh, at this point, uh, 50% of the wood exported from the planet Akaz, they make this Alaka wood, and it can only come from there, is used for that drug production. Because they can't make it anywhere else in the universe. 50% of its 50% exports of its is just turned into of drugs. Of a planet's export. 
<laughs> planet. So is this a common theme where like there's this one thing can only be found on this one planet? Uh, I think it is going to be a lazy thing we see in the encyclopedia every now and then. Uh, uh, I, I can't... Uh, I feel like this may be not a uh, a Herbert, or at least a yeah, uh, Frank yeah. Herbert edition. That one we'll definitely write off as somebody else. Uh, I think it was kind of cheap to reuse that. Of mm. like, Clearly that should only be for the spice in this universe, if, if it's going to be a trope at all. All right. All um, right. But the, the mention of those two drugs I thought was interesting and adds some context to the uh, the culture of this world. Uh, and I think ultimately that's the last bit I have for you in here. Oh man! So do you know what that means then, Derek? What does that does that mean? Something? It means it's time for the glossary game. Oh! oh! Let's see if you don't cheat oh, this time. I didn't cheat. All right, you got enough wine there. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, good. Yeah. You're top good. them all off. Top all them all right. off. All right. Um, I got two words for you today, Derek. Okay. Um, I got two answers this time. I promise. You got. Oh, we'll see. Let's see how confident he is. Um, last time you had some trouble with uh, AQL. AQL, which uh, I did do my homework, and I found out where that is in the book. Oh. So I'm going to hold one over you now when we get to that <laughs> chapter. And See if, if I can spot it. Yeah, I think that will be the ultimate redemption for me. We're like, if you don't get it when we come across it, I take the point back. <laughs> I'm going to have to be like really observant now. And I'm going to take a page out of your book. <laughs> okay. So uh, the word I have for you comes from the ends in the glossary. It is naib, or naib. Naib. Oh, um, oh no. <laughs> oh, I feel like I got this one. Um, oh, I'm losing its placement. So that is a Fremen word. And I think the naib is like the one in charge of the sech. A leader. No. 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 I mean, that's kind of, uh, so. then uh, maybe, maybe like a, uh, is it like a, like someone leading a party, just like so you you're sort of close in one aspect of it with a, a fremen leader. It's a traditional oath of a fremen leader, but the oath oh, states okay. one who has sworn it never to be taken alive by the enemy. Okay, so the naib is the oath. Uh, the naib is the person who makes the oath. One who has sworn never to be taken alive by the enemy. Okay. Okay. So. I, I or maybe it, maybe it is oath. Maybe maybe the no no it, it, it's, it's it's mean for a person. Okay, um, but it like yeah the person who took that oath. I, I'd say I don't get it. Uh, it's close. Oh okay yeah no I definitely say you don't get it. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> okay. not being like generous at all. You failed. <laughs> uh, but I got another one for you that uh, maybe you'll be able to redeem yourself on here. We'll see. We'll see. This one comes from the S's here. Okay. And I honestly when I first oh, wrote this it, down. Is it no, <laughs> that'd be the worst. Um, I think I'm going to pronounce it wrong. When I wrote it down in my notes, I'm like, that can't be right. And had to reread it. So it's, uh, I think it's Selim Leek. We might need a spelling here. Selam Leek or, uh, so it's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. Selam Leek. Selam Leek. Originally, when I put it in my notes, it said uh Milk. And I was just like, that can't be right. Okay. Is that going to be like like a like a prayer to God? I'll give you a no, no, I'll give you a hint though. It is a place. It is a location, more specifically a type of room. Uh then the most I can get you, is that gonna be like <laughs> this might be sound weird. I kinda, is that the orgy room? 
<laughs> the orgy room. There's an orgy room. In is, this it, is it like is it like a room for like a big religious meeting? <laughs> it, <laughs> it is the imperial audience chamber. <laughs> That's an orgy room. That's an orgy room. Sometimes <laughs> no. you never know. Ah, oh, <laughs> depends on who's visiting. imperial. I was. <laughs> I, I love it. I still will say mine was not wildly out of context. It, I mean, made, when you understand where I'm coming from. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, you're going to play that card. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe uh, maybe we'll have some uh, hot action here later in the book. But, but uh, <laughs> that definitely has uh, like Arabic roots in it. So I can see why yeah. it could also end up in the Padishah Emperor's. The, uh, the spelling of it is kind of particular. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, the prayer part is saying like, Assalamu alaikum. Oh, kind of I, like I could, pulling I that word out of it. Ah, uh, oh, that's bad. Well, good bad. try, Derek. Bad. Good try. If anyone at home got that, then congratulations. You're to welcome both. to come and take my seat next <laughs> yeah. week. We're looking for new hosts. <laughs> Someone who knows a glossary. <laughs> um, I think that's gonna wrap up our exploration of chapter two. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say, Derek? No, I think that was pretty good. Uh, we will be leaving Getty Prime uh, after this chapter, and we're going to head back to Castle Caladan. Ooh. And we're going to check in on the Lady Jessica's morning room, and the Lady Guy's Helen Mahayim hasn't left yet. And Oh, so she's still there. We still get to see a bit more interaction. Still there, yeah. Them. We're going to actually go in uh, right after Paul's test and kind of oh. check in on them for that night and see how everything's winding down there. Oh, boy. I can't wait. I really like that trio. And honestly, it's a much more comfortable spot than Harko. Yeah. <laughs> really? You say? Yeah. I guess until then, my name is Mike. My name's Derek. The Spice, Spice Must, must Flow. My name's Derek. My name's Mike. And oh, damn it. <laughs> We're never going to get this right. <laughs> what was wrong with it? I clicked the fan. <laughs> like just right up here. And I was like, I don't want that. <laughs> That's why. Okay. Okay. <laughs> round two. Round two. Step one needs to be take everything out of my hands and <laughs> throw them across the room. <laughs>